Welcome to Geared for Growth. I'm your host, Mike Mortlock, Managing Director of MCG Quantity Surveyors, and welcome back to our special podcast series where we're talking about the property investing journey from start to finish. Today, we're talking about using data and helping you to select a property that matches the demand in a certain location. So specifically demographics and how demographics can help you align your purchase to make sure that it's going to be a growth asset. We're talking to property data super nerd Kent Lardner, who's going to guide us through how we can look at the data, how we can find areas that have the high demand, what sorts of properties are in demand, whether they be units or houses or two bedders versus three bedders, everything that you need to know to make sure that you're maximizing your opportunity for capital growth. Kent's a guru with this sort of stuff, and it's an awesome interview that I really enjoyed, and I hope you will as well. Here's Kent. Kent Lardner, thank you for joining me back on Geared for Growth. It's been too long. How long has it been? Oh, at least three or four years. Normally I have that up and I say, check him out on episode, I don't know. But the good news is you'll be back um, on this little short series where we're talking about the property investing journey from start to finish. But your first uh, commission is how to match your property to meet the demand in the market. Now, what am I talking about there? Well, I'm saying that... When you talk about a suburb growing by 15%, um, you know, we hear about markets within markets, but then there's kind of sub-products within suburbs, i.e. are the houses the ones that are doing the heavy lifting and the, uh, and the units are actually going down? How do we get to that granular point where we can use data and research to pick out the real drivers? That's, that's the topic for today. Oh, that sounds really interesting. Oh, good. I'm glad because if you didn't enjoy it, uh, this is going to be a long 20 minutes. Yeah, so I think the key is you. if you're measuring the market, most people measure and split out houses and units into, into those two broad buckets and then measuring the medians at those levels. And obviously you have some sub-markets there. You, know, you, you can measure by one bedroom and two bedroom and three bedroom as I do. The biggest challenge you've got is when you get down into a granular suburb level, your sample sizes get pretty small. So usually if you're trying to measure those sub-markets of of bedroom count, for example, you'd do that at a state level or you'd do that at a regional level. You wouldn't necessarily uh, look to do that at a suburb level. Um, but uh, in terms of you know the markets and how you're measuring them, one of the one of the important things I think is to understand that um, a lot of the measures are based on a median price and therefore they're based on a typical median house. And a lot of investors specifically focus on yield. And one of the challenges that always jumps out at me is using the the yield as we all measure it at the median level is fine as long as you're buying a house at the median level. Mm. Um, so it's, you know, that's the safe bet. And then that can change fairly dramatically in some markets as you go to a, a bigger house or a more expensive house or down the other way. And would, is it fair to say that property investors would tend to purchase under the median as a general rule? There's a lot of talk about that on the forums. I love the online Facebook forums because I get to watch what people are talking about and assuming that's representative of the whole Mm. buying below median is a fairly common strategy yeah yeah because i guess they're talking about the if we look at uh say demand for a property as a pyramid shape the the blue chip top 
1% of the market mansions, there's only a certain amount of people that are in the market for that as a rental or as a purchase, whereas under the median, you're going to have that bigger demand. And I think that sort of ties into a little bit what we're trying to, to figure out here. Now, there's not just houses versus units and you know bedroom counts, but I guess it's the drivers behind those bedroom counts. So why is three bedroom more popular in a suburb than say a four bedroom property? So how do we look at the demographics of the people? The people. Um, well, obviously, we've got things like age and race and sex, as I like saying that word. Mm-hmm. Um, but then we've got employment and income and um, various population um, data points as well. So I'm, I'm broadly just classifying all of this stuff as demographics. One of the big drivers of interest at the moment has been that population shift out of the cities into southeast Queensland or out into these commutable uh, regional locations. So that a lot of the demographic experts have been commentating on this a fair bit. And it's fascinating to see. And if you pick on places like the Central Coast or Gosford, you can see what's happening there at a broad level. The market's really tight. But why is that happening? It's because there's a, a fairly significant shift in, in population that moves around. Also, you can see in the cities, in, in the CBDs, you can see that people have exited those CBD locations and you can see the vacancy rates show up there. So, yeah, there's a demographic component to that uh, and a demographic impact. And I think one of the things we will find of interest with the census is what will happen in the city locations in terms of how many people are living there on census night. We'll probably Mm. see a decrease in some of the population Mm. relative to what we expected because people weren't there on census night. The other key thing we'll see in that demographic bracket or demographic measure will be income. I th- it's going to be fascinating to see when census comes out what happens to income levels mm. as a result of COVID. Yes, it was a, I mean, it's supposed to be a typical snapshot into every household, but it was a very atypical time, unprecedented as we sort of gave up saying that word for good reason. But, but, <laughs> but like, does that mean that the census is – I mean, it's going to have snapshot value to, to look at the policy that came out around COVID, but is it going to have housing market value given that we're going to be hopefully soon in a post-COVID world? I think it will always have value. I, I love the census, but I think there's some significant things we will have to explain We'll have to explain a lot of things away. Mm. And there'll be things that change within six or 12 months. So you'd almost say, hey, we should have probably kicked the census can down the road by 12 months mm. until the vax had happened. Because it's very likely that the inner city demographics is going to change fairly rapidly. Mm. And I think another thing that may well come of all of this is, you know, the result of people moving out what's happening in the city. There's been some trends that existed pre-COVID, but they're really ramping up now. And it's interesting to see what will happen in the CBD with build to rent and the increase in in a lot of renters and the increase in density. And, and there's a correlation, obviously, there between density and rental tenure. And I kind of classify rental tenure, by and large, as a demographic-type measurement. It's straight out of census. Uh, and you see some fascinating results there. And I think that's going to be one of the biggest things we find is the cities are going to be by and large full of renters right. and the regions are going to be by and large full of owners. Yeah, interesting. That'll be an interesting one to, to check. And that sort of 
It jogs the mind as some of the different snapshots and data points that we get on census night, like uh, the tenure, like the percentage of people that own a home outright or whether it's mortgaged. What are some of the key data points that you see that correlate to price movements, whether positive or negative? Well, with one of the models that I have been producing, I look to I use machine learning to forecast inventory inventory levels, inventory. And what that are, that is, it's just a measure of of how many listings there are on average and how many properties sell on average. And that's an expression of how many months of stock you've got. So you know five is is fairly average and three is a pretty tight market and 10 is a, a market that more than likely will have some downward pressure on price. So I forecast that and that's a pretty robust machine learning model by and large. When you plug in the, the census data, now admittedly that's old data now, mm. um, that that shows up at different points in time, I see different data points show up as significant. And the ones that are showing up right now, there's two that really stand out. That's the uh, the number of properties that are fully owned or percentage fully owned mm-hmm. and born in, percentage of people born in Australia. Those, those, those two, two things may correlate to each other as well. I, I, I think so, you know, and we, we're talking about a lot of the markets that have been very, very tight um, are, a lot of them are the expensive beachside suburbs. So you've got a lot of people who may been in these locations as retirees, mm-hmm. you know, or they might be old money, second, third generation type properties in the eastern suburbs of Sydney, et cetera. So yep. a, a lot of those things are really driving some from some fairly significant tight markets, which then in turn drive price growth. So the percentage of let's, – let's look at um, – born in Australia versus immigrants or migrants, um, the higher the percentage of Australian born in a suburb, the hotter the market at the moment? Well, it's it's picked up. It's effectively, if you think of it as a decision tree, um, you go down the tree and you, you branch out left, right, and you go over there and you go over there and you do that hundreds of times. And typically what we're finding is that it's just pivoting on that key data point. Mm-hmm. So in most cases what it says is if – it's above a certain threshold. If right. it's above a certain percentage uh, of people born in Australia, I will build my models this way. Mm, okay. So it's saying that it has a real statistical significance in the prediction itself once it gets over, say, 75%. Or whatever, yeah. So it's it's an interesting one. And, you know, you'll find that things do change in different locations. So, you know, one of the bigger drivers was obviously a lot of the new house and land areas and a lot of the outer suburbs of Victoria, the models there, obviously, they um, leverage, you know, ha- have you moved in the last few years or where were you born? Um, so obviously that's a big driver of who's buying there. So there's some, you know, it, it's horses for courses, different data sets work in different places, but at a macro level, those are the two key demographic measures that are just jumping off the page at the moment. Mm, that's interesting because people talk about uh, days on market and whether yields are increasing or decreasing vacancy rates, but very little about those demographic points. What What about, let's say, the percentage of, of owned outright properties? If you were looking at two suburbs side by side, all else being equal, is owned outright going to likely perform better as a market? 
Well, it's certainly, it, it, it is at the moment in these models, but I can equally, because I'm, I'm, I've got a few years on me, um, I remember times when housing markets didn't always thrive and you had actually some losses in some cases if you, if you purchased poorly. And we've always been focused, I've always been focused on that one because it just gave you some stability. Right. Um, if, interest, if interest rates went up, which we really in the last, what, 15 years, we've not seen much of that. Mm. Um, but there was a time when interest rates went the other way and you've got, uh, you've got people with small mortgages or no mortgages that really uh, ultimately benefit mm, from that movement. So that, no that has a flow-on effect. And, and another interesting one, I'm going back probably oh, 15 years now, is there was the, uh, GFC, the, the GFC hit and there was some turmoil in uh, stock markets around the world. And um, there were a number of suburbs through Sydney where you could see that people were exposed to the financial markets as well. And that had an impact on the housing market. So everything's tied together. It's not just going to pivot on one thing. What's your age? Where were you born? Do you own your house? Uh, Everything's interconnected. So it's very hard to isolate one thing like demographics. But, you know, if if we were to really simplify things, yeah, income's a big driver. Employment's a big driver. Population growth. They're all they're all drivers, um, and certainly, I've I've heard I've read some interesting um, posts about you know it does population growth drive the housing market? It's an interesting theory, but population decrease has had a significant impact on the CBD right now. Mm. So it works in different ways in different directions. Mm. So population increase by and large, yes, when we're looking at one direction. You can you can you often see a lack of significant statistical significance when when you're trying to look at population increases because generally the housing market accommodates that. But what we had in the CBDs is a population decrease, which had is had a massive impact on rental markets, a very statistically significant impact on rental markets. Yes, yeah, it's been been massive. From a vacancy point of view, right? That's yes. been the main thing, and and tenants are in a great negotiating position in many of those big complexes. Whereas the rest of the country, it's ridiculously tight crisis, even. Yeah, so you know, clearly that's demographic data, and clearly that's a housing market statistic, and there's a correlation. Mm. We'll give you that one. Now, um, now people can go to, I'm not sure, domainrealestate.com and they can see those little infographics of the people and the little wheels that spin around saying, you know, household income and the percentage with mortgages. Better than that, they can go to Suburb Trends and see a lot of that data. Now, if you are sort of thinking, look, here is my price point, um, I'm buying a certain type of property, these are the suburbs that I've nailed it down to, what information can they get from places like Suburb Trends or realestate.com that is of value that they should be looking at? What are the key points that you would consider? The Give for Growth Property Investing Podcast is presented by our business, MCG Quantity Surveyors. If you're an investor or a property professional looking to get the best tax depreciation deductions for yourself or your clients, please get in touch with us at mcgqs.com.au. It's our mission to help as many property investors as we can to maximise their claims and maximise their property education as well. Yeah, I'd be very careful of short-term medians at a suburb level. Mm-hmm. 
especially on a time series. So be careful of that. I think if you if you are looking at price movements, um, you you want to do that at a at a broader level, at a regional level. I what I can talk to what what I've created and and, and why I've created heat maps that compare and rank adjacent suburbs. So when you're looking uh, at a marketplace, you can see if there's a potential ripple effect. So if there's a hot, hot, hot regional overall market, are there particular suburbs that might be slightly lagging or below price? That And then then what you want to do is ask, well, why? So I think you, you wouldn't limit your research to just one uh, resource, obviously. But I think there's some dimensions on the data that people have been using for a long time that are a little bit flawed, and especially if you're just looking at suburb medians, that's a worry. The other one I really love is is price segmentation. Yep. Um, so you look at you know, how many properties as a percentage are sold in that bucket versus the higher bucket versus the next one. And I think knowing where you are on those in those uh, percentiles or bu- uh, buckets are uh, really important. If you, you know, as I said, if you're buying in and around the median, then you know, for example, you could probably trust your, your yield calculation if you're looking uh, and you're buying in one of those top bands at the top right up at the top end of the market with expectations that you could renovate and add a bedroom and add this at the other you might be setting records for the for the suburb so uh, good luck it's a you know it's, it, it might work out for you but it's just a risk that you should be aware of so those that price segmentation if we think about sort of a a flat line, there might be a little column spike to say, you know, between 200 and 300, there's been eight sales, between 500 and 600, there's been four, and there's been one at a million plus. Looking at that actually gets you to think, okay, well, how reliable is the median going to be if it's a big spread? It's it's exactly. So there's a couple of key things you get out of these price segmentation segmentation charts. Say that three times fast. The first thing you do is you look at the, the, the spread of values. So you know whether this is a suburb that goes all the way from 400,000 to 2 million, for yeah. example. Um, equally, you can see if it's a fairly homogenous market where all the price, everything's kind of within two or 300K. So I think the spread of values tells you a lot. Um, looking at a beachside suburb will will obviously tell you that clearly because you can see there's a market next to the beach, there's a market you know, a few hundred metres back from the beach, and then there's the rest. Mm. And a lot of the beachside suburbs in, in Australia, you'll find there's probably two or three markets. It's, it's almost two or three suburbs, um, and you split it up based on proximity. Uh, to the water's edge. Um, so I think price segmentations is great because it tells you a lot about the profile of the suburb and it tells you a lot about the price uh, and how reliable medians are for that particular suburb. So if we see a suburb that has a, a very narrow spread of purchase prices, let's say that you know 98% of them are between 800,000 and, and 950 mm. then then you can trust things like the rental yield and if it's historically moved upwards or or the median price if it's historically moved upwards is that a reasonable enough indicator to pitch your flag on a suburb yes yes um, what you've if you're talking about yield for example you've got a little bit of a, a double whammy because you'd need to rely on the the, the sale price and the distribution of the sale price, you also need to rely on the the rental price. Mm. So both of those go into it. By and large, 
uh, and I'm just a general statement, by and large, the rentals are much better behaved price distributions right. than sales. Um, so you'll find you, you know, if the sale prices are reasonably distributed, you can put your hand on your heart and say, yeah, I, I think I can trust the, the rents here so the yields will be okay. Yep, okay. So to round us out, if, if you could pick, say, two or three top things that you would be looking at in a suburb that is an indicator that you're, you're looking in the right direction, what would you have for us? From a demographic perspective? Mm. Um, well, I think at the moment right now, I'll obviously go with the percentage fully owned because that's just what's turning up in the, in the data right now. So that's an interesting variable for, for a number of reasons I can explain and a number of reasons I probably can't explain when it comes to a machine learning model. So that's an interesting one, I think, certainly. Um, the, there's some others that I really like at the moment, uh, and I'm saying at the moment because we've gone through so much turmoil with with the exodus from the cities, is rental tenure. So, you know, what's the percentage of, of renters or rentals in that particular uh, suburb, which has a, a fairly high correlation to population or, or uh, density, um, housing density. I think there's some of the really big um, d- data sets you can extract straight out of census um, that will tell you a lot about a market and, and a lot of those suburbs that have been fairly volatile in the last couple of years uh, have been because they've been high density, high rental. Yeah, interesting. And, and I think like when you think about a high percentage of rental, it means more competition for your property in the tenancy market if you are an investor. And we know for a fact that people that own their property and live in it and occupy the property, spend more on the upkeep. So it's, it sort of speaks to gentrification and the aesthetic of the area, which is important, price driver as well, right? But it's a bit less tangible. Well, with a condition, um, there's a lot of suburbs where, you know, picking on demographics, where age um, comes in. So that, you know, we've got people sitting on houses that maybe have increased, you know, they've owned it for, owned it for 30 years or more, they've retired, um, they're sitting on a, you know, one or a $2 million property and they're, they're living on a pension. Mm. So they're not going to be renovating the house too much. And mm. uh, so, you know, they drop off the perch and and suddenly the renovation game begins. So uh, age does have a fairly significant bearing on that metric. You'll find whole suburbs, you know, I'll pick on Newcastle, for example, there's whole suburbs where, you know, these people bought their houses, you know, 20, 30 years ago for under 100K or whatever, mm. and suddenly now they're sitting on a million-dollar house or a $1.5 million house or more, uh, and it's weatherboard and it's run down. Mm. There's a no lot money of that. To, no There's money to fill the that, Corolla. No money to, to paint, even paint it. And when you get to a certain age, reverse mortgages are terrifying, I imagine. Yes, I, um, I've always worried about that. You know, I think... Um, it's uh, interesting because who gets their hand in your pocket? Talking about that type of stuff too, it's interesting what might happen in the cities in the coming years. Uh, you know, the build-to-rent market is going to be one to watch. Mm. I just see as, as yields start to go get lower and lower, the mar and par investors won't be borrowing at the same money as these um, uh, top end of town Wall Street types mm. coming in. So, you know, the institutions will be a big competitor in the rental space. So I can see an interesting shift there, massive shifts in the cities as a result. So demographic shift will be a lot less uh, home ownership, a lot more renters. 
There'll probably be a, a shift in age we'll see in the cities. Uh, and there'll be a lot of uh, a very different profile of landlord in the coming five to 10 years in the cities. Well, we are getting you back for advanced property research, uh, but we may have to get you back post-census just to just to download that. So, um, Kent, it's been a pleasure having you on again. And uh, if you weren't aware, Kent and I actually co-host another podcast called Suburb Trolls. It is a little bit naughty, um, occasionally explicit, um, and there, you know, there is occasionally some value. We do talk about data, but there also is a little bit of filth there. So just, just a full disclaimer. But um, a little bit, a, just, a little bit, just a mild bit, just because it's normally recorded on a Friday afternoon, and certain things have annoyed us, so we onload, <laughs> we we offload a little bit. So go and check out Suburb Trials if you're interested in that. Kent, we'll see you on the next episode. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you.